some of you are thinking, what's the fuss? <laughs> Colin and Liz, could you stand up, please? This is... Oh, don't wake the baby. Colin and Liz are parents of Jess and three others, just three others, yes. You can sit down now. So we can't celebrate Jess without celebrating you. Um, Jess has been on our team, uh, staff team for a while now and she came in, actually you're still serving voluntarily. <laughs> and you would have um, been in meetings where Jess has led worship. Um, she just has this most amazing heart and capacity and able to draw people to Jesus. And she's been doing that probably since you were a little girl, really. So let's just have enough of me and we'll hand over to Jess. <laughs> Thank you, Lynn. Thanks for having me. It's pretty cool. Um, so my name is Jess, um, in case you didn't know. Um, my husband Joe, he's at the sound desk there, um, and I, we have two kids, two and a bit kids. Um, Ottilie is very nearly three. Finn is, oh, yeah, 15-ish months, I think. I, I wrote that and I thought, oh, I don't need to write down the age of my kids. I know the age of my kids. Second child, 15-ish uh, months. Um, and then there's a little chicken nugget in there, bacon away, that'll be, woohoo. Ah. Um, anyway, we are the young adults pastors here at Thrive, and um, we love it. It's so much fun. We laugh a lot. We have a lot of fun. Um, and if you're older than a young adult, I'm sure you can look back fondly at those years where it kind of set the trajectory of your life now, right? And, you know, you look back and you were free before you had kids. You could spend you only had yourself to spend your money on, um, you know, free time before you had a career and a family and all the rest. Um, it's just a lot of fun, 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 fun. It's massive. Um, and, you know, you might have met your spouse in your young adult years. That's exciting, isn't it? And there's a, there's a bit of that. <laughs> um, yeah, you, you probably started a family and a career. Uh, you moved from underneath your parents' belief systems and the way that they think to starting to forge your own and decide what you think and believe. You tried things, failed at things. You know, there's just this exponential growth that happens in this short, short window. Um, it's huge. It's a lot. Um, but we love it. And we are so privileged to be able to speak life into these young people and call them up into their God-given um, plans and purposes. So keep them in your prayers as they kind of begin the rest of their life, so to speak. Um, and that's what it's all about. On that, while I've got the microphone and your attention, <laughs> we had a somewhat heated discussion a few weeks ago. And I think now would be an appropriate time to get a majority ruling on that. <laughs> um, it has come to my attention that... There are some of our young adults that, that have grown up with a belief that I think is wrong. And, you know, I'm willing to be wrong. I don't think I am. But it's a small minority. There is a childhood song that you probably all know that there's some controversy around the name for it. 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sing the phrase, and can you raise your hand? I'm going to sing it three different ways. Can you raise your hand if you identify with the way that I sing it, okay? Now, no shame, no condemnation. Um, we respect you. It's not your fault. It's, <laughs> it's just the way that you've been raised. But we lovingly speak the truth to you that you're wrong. So, okay. <clears throat> Whoa, hokey pokey. No hokey pokey people. That surprises me. Interesting. Okay. Or oh, half hokey pokey. No shame, Sasha. No shame. Okay. Whoa, hokey tokey. Yeah. Yep. That's where I that's where I sit. Okay, now this last one again. Don't we don't judge them. Whoa, hokey cokey. One. One. So I think sold, we're a hokey-tokey people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. All right. Yeah. All right. Anyway, this morning, I'm going to talk about um, Moses' tabernacle. Woo! Uh, from the book of Exodus. There is so much here, so much in this. We could do a 16-part series. We won't. Um, so I'm going to race through as much as I can this morning, but I would encourage you to go away and, and research and um, read more into it because there's so, so much in here. Um, now, although we don't have to physically do any of this, praise the Lord, uh, there are some principles here that we can and should apply to our worship today. All of it, now I'm going to give you the answer to my entire message pretty early in the piece here. All of it is an image and foreshadowing of Jesus and what was to come. And this may not be new to you this morning, but I hope that you can get something so the word tabernacle means dwelling place. And let's get our first picture up there. It was the portable earthly dwelling place of Yahweh, of God, as the Israelites journeyed through the wilderness to the promised land. Kind of a church on wheels, if you will. There it is there. So God's heart was to dwell among his people. And we know the second half of this story, right, where Jesus came to fulfill the prophecy, the veil was torn, we have direct access to the Father, we became right with him, justified, righteous with God. But this morning, here's some context and backstory to that. And hey, can I encourage you, if you're not already, study the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of this book. You know, the New Testament and Jesus' teachings come alive when you understand the context. Um, and just watch how your reverence and awe for the Father and for Jesus, watch how that changes. It's, it's amazing. This, this book is incredible. Okay. So this is the tabernacle. It's sort of in uh, three parts here. You've got um, the outer court, 
And then that tent in the back there is uh, divided up. You've got the holy place. Then there's a veil, a curtain. And behind the curtain was called the Holy of Holies. So the tabernacle was situated from east to west. And the tabernacle was in the very center of the camp with the 12 tribes of Israel camped around it. And you can kind of see a picture of, there were a lot of people, thousands and thousands of people camped around the outside there. Each person's tent was pitched facing the tabernacle. They did not live with their backs to God, but with their faces toward him. Interesting. The Israelites entered through one gate, that little spotty, dotty gate here at the bottom. Um, One gate on the east, and each tribe had equal access into the tabernacle. But there was only one way in. And here's our first little glimpse of Jesus here. No one comes to the Father except through me. Through, not me, Jesus. So we're going to start in this outer courtyard here. Um, You'll see at the front, that little square, that is the altar of burnt offerings, the brazen altar. Here's a picture of it. There it is. So first, God required the Israelites to sacrifice a perfect animal for their sins. The blood of a perfect animal was important to justify the people before God. Sacrifices needed to be made regularly because the people kept on sinning. The person bringing the sacrifice would um, put their hand on the head of the lamb and the priest would kill it and then it was symbolically transferring their sin to the lamb and then the lamb was died in their place. Now, God was merciful here. If a person couldn't afford a lamb, they were allowed to bring a pair of birds. If they couldn't afford the birds, then they could bring some flour. I personally do not do birds. Um, So the thought of holding a pair of them while the priest does what he does actually makes me physically ill. So I think Joe would have to do the family sacrifices if we were that level of income earners, or we'd have to earn some more money, one or the other. Um, Blood atonement goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve had sinned, God killed an animal to clothe them. The priests were dressed in this ornate regalia. You can read all about it in Exodus. And it was ugly and messy, and such a stark contrast between these priests and their beautiful garments dealing with the sin of the Israelites and sprinkling blood with their hands on the altar. It was messy and uncomfortable, and it highlighted the serious consequences of sin and God's justice. Quite simply, the wages of sin are death. There has to be a consequence or a payment for our sin. You know, this alone is such a beautiful picture because we know what happened, right? Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was the final sacrifice. He died once and for all for our sins and atoned for us. 
amazing. This alone is such a beautiful picture. We could do the whole message here of both God's justice and his mercy. God made a way for sinful men to come to him. Interesting, the altar was made out of wood, overlaid with gold. The cross was also made out of wood. There's some parallels there. And it was also to be kept burning continually. In the same way, God's forgiveness is continually available to us. This is such a vital first step. If we misunderstand this, if we devalue this, if we skip this, the rest of it is kind of pointless. We've we've missed it. The price Jesus paid and what he did for us. Don't don't devalue that. Don't misunderstand that. So next we have the laver. And from here forward was only for the priests. The priests performed the rest of this on behalf of the Israelites. So after making the sacrifice and any time they were to enter the tent, the tabernacle, the priest washed himself at the laver. The washing purified the priest and prepared him to enter the tabernacle. It says in the Bible that they must cleanse themselves so they don't die. Fairly serious consequences for not washing your hands. And I mean, there's some basic hygiene practices there that we know now, you know, wash your hands after going to the toilet and making blood sacrifices to atone for the people of the Israelites, obviously. Um, But more than that, it was ceremonial. The priest, that although a sacrifice had been made, we still live with the consequences or the effects of sin. They needed to be regularly cleansed from the evidence of sin before they approached God. God is holy, and they knew not to approach him dirty. Conversion happens once, but cleansing of our hearts again and again and again. Why? Because there's still sin in the world. We still sin. When you give your life to the Father, your position changes. You are justified. You are uh, made right with him. We are made kings and priests with Jesus. Amen? That's awesome. However, sin isn't instantly eradicated from our life. So we need to regularly come to God and ask for forgiveness. You know, David says, search me, O God. Allow the Holy Spirit to convict us. We know he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But I hope we're not too proud to think that we don't need Jesus anymore after we've been saved. Because that's a sin and you probably need to ask for forgiveness for that. Maybe you don't, but I still sin. I get angry. Not, not me trying to get out of the house this morning without marshmallow in my hair and... Um, mascara off the couch. Um, I'm disobedient to God. I have a bad attitude towards people. And I can't lead myself into a place of worship with that in my heart, let alone lead anyone else. That's not biblical. 
So I want to encourage you to let Jesus in. Continually cleanse. Let him cleanse you of your sins. Humble yourself before him. We still need him after we get saved. You know, don't let bitterness or any byproduct of sin fester away unchecked. Allow the Holy Spirit in to convict you and repent. Humble yourself before him because we need him after we get saved. So then they would make their way into the tent. And on the right-hand side there, you see a little table, the table of showbread. Here it is. Aaron and his sons placed 12 loaves of bread, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, on the table. Um, The bread was eaten by Aaron and his sons before the Lord on the Sabbath. The table was one of the first things you saw when the priests entered the tabernacle. It was a reminder of the everlasting promises of God and a memorial of his provision of food. There's a couple of takeaways here for us this morning. Obviously, Jesus is the bread of life. Uh, John 6, 32, Jesus said to them, Very truly I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Our second takeaway here is that God is our literal provider. We must remind ourselves of that. Record the testimony of Jesus. Make a memorial. Share it with your friends. Talk about it. Write it down. Remember and thank him for what he has done. We are a pretty forgetful bunch. I'd like to think not as forgetful as the Israelites here, but yeah, sometimes, you know, we see God come through in a miraculous way, and then the next sign of hardship, we've forgotten. Forgotten the manner on the ground, so to speak. So remember his provision. On the other side of the tent was the, uh, the lampstand. It was golden, made of pure gold, and it was one piece made by a skilled craftsman. There were no joins. Um, it was so ornate and detailed, and it was fueled by oil. It served a practical and symbolic purpose. Practically, there were no, tent, no windows in the tent, so the priests needed some light to do their duties. But if it was only for a practical purpose, why would God tell them that it must be lit 24-7. So it must symbolize something. It symbolizes Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. John 12, 46. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. What an awesome promise. That's cool, eh? Also interesting to note here that the lamp was fueled by fresh oil. Oil in the Bible speaks of the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the illumination that brings 
on Jesus and his word. The oil was the fuel source for the lamp. Without the oil, the lamp has no light. Without the Holy Spirit illuminating, the power and glory of Christ is lost. God instructed the lamp to be tended to, fresh wicks and fresh oil twice a day. In the words of Colin Smith, my father, how's your oil? <laughs> we all have that father, male figure in our life, don't we? Check your oil. How's your oil? I don't know. The light's not on. I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> Are you refreshing yourself regularly with the power of the Holy Spirit? Because it's by His Spirit that the light of Jesus shines through us. Next, the altar of incense. Prescribed incense was to be burned in the morning and the evening, the same time the daily burnt offerings were made. Incense represents the prayers of the saints. This is referenced a lot in Revelation, but also uh, David prays in Psalms, may my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. It also points to Jesus, surprise, um, and how he is still the great high priest interceding for us at the right hand of God. It's important to note how specific God was with the recipe of the incense. This brew of spices was sacred and not to be used by the Israelites as a perfume. If they did, they would be cut off from their people. Which, I mean, at least they didn't die. But it was essentially a death sentence. They would be cut off from their safety, their family, their provision, their inheritance. Not to mention, cut off from the promise of God. And they would be left on their own, wandering in the wilderness. We cannot come to God our own way. He has been pretty clear in here about with his instructions on the right way to approach him, to pray to him, and to worship him. And that's through Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. We need Jesus. Without his blood, we simply don't measure up. Our prayers are selfish and shallow. Our sacrifice is lackluster. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. How awesome. So next... We would move through from the, um, from the holy place, and behind the curtain there is the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was housed in the holy of holies behind the veil. It was where God's Shekinah glory descended. The Ark, there it is contained uh, a jar of manna, Aaron's staff, and the Ten Commandments. The ark represented the presence of God with his people. Only once a year 
on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, not just anyone, not just any priest, only the high priest was allowed to enter that back room to sprinkle blood onto the mercy seat to atone for the sins of all the people. You know, the priests, they could follow all the rules. They could follow the law to the T. They could make all the sacrifices on the right day. But they were still not worthy to enter the Holy of Holies and commune with God as they pleased. Access to God was limited and restrictive. But God, he wanted a relationship with his people. If you were an Israelite, the only way to the Father was through the high priest. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is now our great high priest. Hebrews 4, 14. This is a really cool verse. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive his mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So cool. Also, when Jesus died on the cross, we know what happened. The veil was torn. Woohoo! Um, he made a way for us to have direct access to the Father. You know, who would have dared enter the holy place on their own? Who would have dared approach God in all his holiness and glory? But yet, we can because of Jesus. That is incredible. That is amazing. What a gift. So cool. Now, I want to zoom back out again, and I'll finish with this. This here is a picture of a pattern of worship for us. David makes reference in the Psalms, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts, we have a little courtyard there, with praise. As humans, we are mind, soul, and spirit. Thanking God is a mind-level interaction. You know, God, you have been good. Thank you. Which leads us to actually, wow, you have been so good. Wow, you have saved me. Thank you, God, you have blessed me. You are amazing. You are worthy. You are so generous. Which quite naturally turns into praise. The Bible talks about bringing a sacrifice of praise. A sacrifice is something that costs you something. It looks different for everyone. You know, bring your lamb, your birds, or your flower. But actually, bringing a bird would be a great sacrifice for me because I'd have to lay down a lot to... You know, for you, it might be raising your hands. That might be hard. It might be singing the lyrics of a song that are really hard to sing in your season. 
if you've been in church for a while, you might remember the song, Blessed Be Your Name, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. Great song, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord, Blessed Be Your Name. Quite peppy, it's quite cool. Um, until your family home burns down and you lose all your earthly possessions. That season for our family was hard. And I remember we sung that song in church a few weekends after it happened. And, you know, it was fine. Blessed be your name. Yep. Bless you, God. And then it got to the bridge of that song, which goes, you give and you take away. And my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. That was a sacrifice for, all, for our whole family that morning. Praise is a soul posture. You feel something. You feel emotion. Some people feel tingly or um, almost out of body. Now we should praise until the spirit of worship comes. When there is a shift from within ourselves, from soul to our spirit, when we're ready to lay our life down, Forsake it all for Him. Because all of this, His promise, His provision, His cleansing, His light, His life, it requires a response. And you know, you can ignore it, you know. Lovely couple of songs, I like that new one. Good jokes, I'll see you next week. You can praise Him for it, you know. Thank you, God, you're so good, you have provided for me. Praise you, Father. Or you can worship. You can allow yourself to surrender, to adopt a heart of worship where you say, you know what, I need you to heal me. I need you to provide financially, but I just want you. Even if you don't do anything for me, I just want you. I need you. Listen to what Paul says here in uh, Philippians and hear his heart of worship here. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He's writing this from prison, by the way. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of just knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. The Bible tells us to worship in spirit and in truth. Now, there's two schools of thought here on how you interpret this, and I promise I'm wrapping up. I really promise. Um, the first is quite literally, you know, worship in the Holy Spirit and Jesus. Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that is a great idea. You are not wrong. Worship with the Holy Spirit and Jesus. That is very important. But another way you could think about this, is if we're mind, 
soul, and spirit. Worship in spirit. There are many examples of people who offered worship in the wrong spirit in this book here, in the Bible. One of the first we read about is Cain. His offering was not pleasing to God. He simply had the wrong heart behind his offering. Worship is a heart posture. We can't neglect the truth either, worship in spirit and in truth. You need to know the Father and Jesus, know his character, who he is and what he's done. And how do we do that? By reading the Bible. One without the other is unbalanced. We should worship until the glory of God comes. So we praise until a heart of worship comes. We worship until the glory of God falls. The holy of holies. The manifest presence of God. The band is going to play a song for us again in just a moment. But before they do, I want to pray that God would highlight an area of the tabernacle here where he would like to meet you this morning. I want you to ask yourself, where am I sitting? Where do I feel comfortable? What feels uncomfortable? Where is he leading you? And as we finish here this morning and as you go about your day and your week when you're worshiping, think about where you're positioned and where God is leading you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your promise. But Jesus, the fulfillment of the prophecy for all you have done, we thank you for tearing the veil so that we could have relationship with our Father. And Lord, this morning, I pray that you would lead your people to a heart of worship. Jesus, you are amazing. And we thank you for all you have done. We so need you. Jesus.